the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, if you are a teacher or a lecturer, a public speaker or preacher of any sort, you've probably learned over your time in that profession never to say the words in conclusion. It sets off a flurry of laptops shutting, bags being packed in the church, Bibles closing. And what you are saying in conclusion is often missed. The problem is that what is said at the end is often important. But people have already checked out. They're on their way to their next class. They're on the way to grab more coffee, whatever it may be. In the same way, it's easy to neglect the closing verses of a New Testament epistle because it contains generalized blessings and personal greetings to people we sometimes know little to nothing about. We check out, we start packing our bags, we look for the next epistle to study. But the conclusion, though perhaps not as instructive as the rest of the epistle, is still important if for no other reason than it is in our Bibles and it is the Word of God. And so this morning, before we bring our study of 1 Peter to a close, which we have been in for over a year now, I want to unpack for you his final words in this particular letter. Now, at the time that Peter wrote, a typical Greek letter of the time would end very simply with a a very short closing word. It it could be anything uh, from an oath uh, to a wish for good health, uh, explanation of the purpose of the letter, or even a mention of who it was that carried the letter. The New Testament writers expanded this traditional Greek ending to a lengthier conclusion. And when you read these letters uh, in the New Testament, what you find is it was normal for them to include also a comment about the one who brought the letter to the recipients, uh, also a statement of purpose of the letter. But there's also a greeting, which was rare in, in, in secular Greek letters, but was really valued, especially in the early church, because it strengthened the unity among the churches. So this greeting wasn't from the writer. The, the greeting was from whatever church or other Christians they were with. And so you can understand how without the Internet, without uh, modern technology and forms of communication, you don't really know who else is out there. Or if you do, you don't know what they're doing or what's going on with them. And so that greeting was really helpful in unifying the churches around the world. And then you also see in the New Testament epistles a final line that included uh, some sort of prayer or a blessing. Not always all four of these, but it happens that in the final three verses of First Peter, we do have all four of these components. And they're found in the closing verses in First Peter 5 verses 12 through 14. And if you haven't turned there already, already, would you turn there with me as I read 1 Peter 5, verses 12 through 14, Peter's final words in 1 Peter. He writes, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. And there you have the comment about the messenger. I have written to you briefly, 
exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. There's your purpose statement. Verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. There's the greeting. And in verse 14, you have the concluding prayer or blessing. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Outside of the technicalities of pointing out the different parts of a typical conclusion, there is a lot to unpack here. And it seems like just some closing greetings, but again, it is still the Word of God, and it's worth taking the time to unpack. And in each of these sections, I think there is a lesson for us today in the modern church. I'm going to break it down for you into five closing thoughts from a loving pastor. Five closing thoughts from a loving pastor. The first is the faithful example. The faithful example. Again, he writes, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Now, we don't know much about this man, Silvanus or Silvanus. His name is also uh, referred to as Silas. Clearly, he was a companion of Peter's at this time. And he was most likely the one who brought the letter to these original recipients in Asia. What we do know is that he is faithful, because Peter tells us here. And Peter emphasizes his confidence in this man through the phrase, so I regard him as a faithful brother. This is most likely the Silas who was a frequent companion of Paul's after Paul and Barnabas separated. The record of Paul choosing Silas as his new co-worker to replace Barnabas is seen in Acts chapter 15, specifically verse 40. And after this, Silas was with Paul on his second missionary journey. This would also make him the Silvanus that Paul mentions along with mentioning Timothy in the opening greetings of both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He is also mentioned in 2 Corinthians 1.19 as one who preached to the Corinthians. What this tells us is this man is not just a carrier of letters, but he helped plant these churches with Paul. When studying the Scriptures, we uh, focus on those whom God clearly wants us to focus on, rightly so. In other words, we are very familiar uh, with the uh, major characters of Scripture We are very familiar with the apostles. But understand that the apostles didn't do it alone. There were faithful men and women who came alongside them. I think often today in the American church, we focus on the people in charge. Uh, We're trained to do that since we're young. The teacher and the principal, the professors, the boss, the managers. In the church, we focus on the pastors, the elders. On a larger scale, especially thanks to modern technology, American uh, Christians today focus on the Christian authors, the famous professors, the theologians, the celebrity pastors. It's a mindset, I think, that can encourage a wrong type of thinking, a wrong type of thinking, which is this. I'm not one of them, so I don't really matter. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. Or even as a pastor, some people think, well, I'm, I'm not on TV. I'm not on the radio. I've never written a book that has been published. And so my service doesn't really matter, which can lead to the wrong thinking. I'm not one of them, so I don't need to serve. It's a thinking that leads to 5% of the people 
doing 95% of the work, which is true in most churches in America. And it gives many Christians the excuse to not get involved, to not serve, to come and in their minds do their duty because they've heard a sermon. They go home and maybe read their Bible every day, pray every day, and, and that's it. And there are people who actually prefer larger churches. They prefer mega churches because they prefer the anonymity. They don't know anyone's name. They don't want to know anyone's name. They don't want accountability. They don't want to be called to serve. They don't even want to be served. And somehow, in America, we have dumbed down Christianity to come and hear a sermon, greet a few people, and then leave. But that's not the church. In fact, I don't think any of you would take that philosophy in anything else you do. You would not shut off your alarm and say, I'm not going to work today because I'm not Bill Gates or whoever the most famous professional in your field is. I'm not a CEO. I'm not the boss, so what's the point? But you do go to work because you need the money. So, in a sense, we're selfishly motivated. This is not church. This is not the New Testament church. And though this is not the direct lesson that Peter is teaching us here, I think it's important to understand that there are so many people in the early church that we know very little about, like Silas, Silvanus, and many more, the majority of which we know nothing about. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, freedom of religion, holding a Bible in your lap, having multiple languages of Bibles in your phone, not thinking anything of it, and yet we stand on the shoulders of these people who are faithful. You don't even know their names. Imagine some of us, our favorite pastor on TV, getting to heaven and seeing these people in heaven be like, oh, where are you from? Did did, did you like R.C. Sprawl? Did you listen to John MacArthur? And they just laugh. It's like, no, but I once uh, held Peter over the ground while he was throwing up after getting beaten up. There are so many people that walked with these apostles that helped form the early church. I mean, Peter wrote the letter. But where would we be if Silvanus had not delivered it? Are you looking just to be the person who is written about in a letter? Are you looking to be the person who is recognized up front, who is in the, listed in the, in the minutes of a board meeting? Or are you just going to serve because you want to be faithful regardless of the recognition? And so we see in Sylvanus a faithful example. The second closing thought from a loving pastor is the forceful exhortation. In the end of verse 12, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Here we have the purpose statement that I mentioned earlier. A summary explains why he wrote this letter. And it begins with a conventional politeness of the time, which was to describe one letter as brief, regardless of how long it was. And then, as we have seen so many times through our study of 1 Peter, he again reminds us that everything is God's grace. He says he exhorts and he testifies. Exhort means to call someone to something, to encourage someone. 
And then testify means to bear witness. Peter knows firsthand from his theology and from his experience that God is gracious and that all God does is gracious. Keep in mind that we have seen some seriously difficult things in the lives of these original readers. Heavy, heavy persecution. Sexual violence against them. Physical violence. Emotional violence. All because they have decided to follow Jesus Christ. And yet you know, if you've been with us, that Peter reminds them, be encouraged, be joyful, don't fight back, continue to submit to that husband who is beating you. Continue to submit to that boss that is abusing you because of your faith. Be gracious to them. Be loving to them. God is sovereign. God is watching you. God is growing you. And these things translate to modern day uh, difficulties that may be similar. We have looked at biblical teachings and norms that fly in the face of conventional wisdom and today's social norms. Whether it's family roles, whether it's not taking vengeance, whatever it may be, there's so much that we have seen in First Peter that goes against your natural thinking and it goes against what all of your friends and family who don't know the Lord are telling you to do. They would tell you that it's good and in fact wise to take vengeance. It's good and wise to not submit if you disagree with an elected official's politics. And yet, the Scriptures tell us that is not right. That is not good. And even in the midst of those difficulties, it is all grace. We have seen that in many ways. That it is grace to be tested strengthened and given a stronger eternal perspective through trials. It is grace to be able to follow and model to others the love and patience of their Creator by submitting to the proper authorities in our lives. It is grace to personally know the cornerstone that the world has rejected and upon which they stumble while we are being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. It is grace to be able to lead others to eternal salvation through our chaste and respectful behavior. It is grace to have God, who is the ultimate judge of evil, rather than relying on our own subjective prejudices and opinions. It is grace to be able to live out our roles in the family as God intended in His original and perfect design for mankind. It is grace to be given a spiritual gift to be used as a stewardship of that very same grace. And it is grace to have the ear and the sovereign hand of the one who can handle anything and everything so that we can literally throw, cast all our anxieties upon Him. We have seen in First Peter that it is all grace. No matter the situation, no matter the action, no matter how difficult, we must remember it is all grace. Then as Peter says, once you have remembered that, once you have reminded yourself, stand firm in it. Don't capitulate. Don't give in to the world. Don't give in to your pride. Don't give in to your anger. 
Because every single teaching of 1 Peter that I have just listed off as grace can and has been twisted by our proud and sinful minds to be viewed as not grace, but wrong, bad, awful, unloving. And that's when we cave to temptation. That's when we give in to the pressures of social norms and the manipulation of our own selfish desires. And that's why, forcefully, Peter says, stand firm in it. Stand firm in your role, no matter how difficult it may be. Stand firm in trusting that you have enough provision from God, no matter how much more you may want. Stand firm in it. Because now is not the time to give up. Today is the day to engage. Not tomorrow. Not after the new year. Today. Stand firm today. Stand firm in the truth of all that God has said. Not just the parts that you like. Not just the parts that are convenient. Not just the parts that are easy on your pocketbook. Easy on your schedule. Don't. Give sin another inch. Because haven't we given sin enough already? Stand firm in it. And this is the forceful, the forceful exhortation. Remember, God is gracious. God is gracious to you. God is gracious in your life. And though you may accept that in your mind intellectually because you know what the Bible says, There's a reality in our lives called life. And everything that contains bills to pay, pressures from other people, the Mercedes driving down the street that you long for, whatever it may be, stand firm in the truth of God. Don't give in. Thirdly, the familial engagement. The familial engagement. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. We know just that the fact that he brings up this greeting, but also that phrase, chosen together with you, that he is talking about a believer or believers. And this is a reference to the church, and so the believers in Rome. Again, Uh, This kind of greeting was helpful in connecting and encouraging one another in a time when communication was slow and difficult, especially compared to today. The New Testament writers uh, would often send greetings from the church where they were writing from and naming specific church leaders of that church if they were known to the recipients. If not, they would just do a, a general greeting. So Peter sends greetings from the church in Babylon, which was a nickname for Rome. This nickname actually came from the Old Testament usage of the title Babylon uh, for the oppressor of God's people. It wasn't just Christians who called Rome this name. In fact, after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, Jews applied that same title, Babylon, to Rome as well. But even long before that, secular Romans, Roman writers rather, had begun to refer to their own city as another Babylon because of their luxury and growing level of decadence. And so we know this is referring to the church in Rome. He also sends greetings from Mark. 
whom Peter refers to as his spiritual son. Uh, there's no need to assume that Peter led Mark to saving knowledge of, of, of the Lord. This is just an older believer with a younger believer, a spiritual a discipleship, a spiritual relationship there. Mark, uh, you guys are familiar with. Mark was the individual that joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 25, we see that. And for whatever reason, you remember this, Mark leaves them in, in Pamphylia. And later, when Barnabas suggests to Paul, like, hey, we're going on another trip, let's bring Mark with us. Because Mark had left them, deserted them earlier, Paul says, no, he's not coming with us. And this issue became such a strong disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they actually separated. And then Mark and Barnabas uh, paired up and went on their way. Uh, We see this in the end of Acts 15. We know that years after this, Mark and Paul reconciled as Mark was with uh, Paul during his imprisonment in Rome. And it seems that in, in Peter's life that Mark's house was a main meeting place for Peter And it was possible that Peter even lived there or that church leadership meetings were held at Mark's home. Case in point, uh, remember in Acts 12, uh, Peter is miraculously released from prison by an angel and he goes directly to Mark's house. And there's that famous scene where he's knocking on the door uh, and all the Christians are inside. They're, what are we going to do? Peter's in prison. And so there's a servant girl named Rhoda. She goes to the door. That's her job to open the door. She sees that it's Peter. She gets so excited that she leaves Peter outside, doesn't open the door, and goes back and he tells everyone, Peter's here, Peter's released, he's at the door. And they say, you're crazy, it's an angel, it's someone else. Uh, But it was Peter. That all happened at Mark's house. And so that's Mark. And Peter sends greetings. Mark is with him at this time. Anyway, back to 1 Peter. And the way that normal, uh, the normal way that the New Testament writers wrote, he's reminding them of family. This is family. You know Mark. Silas is with you right now, probably still with you because he's uh, brought you the letter. The church in Rome, uh, you know that they are here, that there's a church here. They greet you. They're thinking about you. They pray for you. Peter is just encouraged his readers with the fact that other Christians all over the world are suffering the same persecution they are. Remember we saw that a few verses back? And now he's encouraging them that, hey, we're all in this together. I think this is uh, something we can learn from. You know, in this day of of growing liberalism and and false teachers uh, within the, the, under the guise of the church, we can be guarded about whom we trust in Christian circles. I mean, you, you meet a stranger, you find out they're a Christian, and you're a little cynical because you don't know what that means. You're a Christian, but what do you believe? Are you Protestant? Are you Catholic? Are you charismatic? Do you believe in the Bible? Do you, what does that mean? Right? And, and, and it's good to be discerning uh, to some degree, to be wise in that way. But at the same time, we must remember that all true Christians are family. The body of Christ is not limited to the walls of the Burlingame High School cafeteria. 
When Paul tells us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans 12, 15, he doesn't just mean those in this room. Now, naturally, we will do that more readily with those in our church because we know what they're going through. But I think sometimes when we see news of a a known Christian going through a difficulty, uh, whether it's some sort of artist or athlete or celebrity pastor, our first tendency is to gossip and slam and judge rather than weep with those who weep. We don't see them as family. I truly believe because of the teachings of, of the New Testament that the epicenter the place from which all of it flows, the epicenter of all Christian service and activity is the local church, whatever church that may be for any individual Christian. But at the same time, we are to rejoice in what God is doing all over the world, not just missionaries overseas, but even in our own backyard. I think far too often when we think of other churches, we have a sense of competition rather than a sense of camaraderie and family. And we need to be careful. How ironic is this? When we have modern technology, when in a fraction of a second, we can find out what's going on with Christians all over the world. We don't even have to go to our computers. We just pull out our, our phones and we can know what's going on through apps or emails or whatever it may be. And these people had to spend days delivering a letter. And even they were so encouraged by all the other churches. Now, I get it. It was different then, right? There were no Christian cults because it was just the early church. Christianity itself was a cult, considered a cult at least by the rest of the world. And today there are all sorts of churches. And again, we need to be discerning. We need to make sure we're not tossed here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine, as Paul warns us. But we also have to embrace the reality that there are churches that may not have what we would consider solid doctrine. And there are pastors that may not practice expository preaching. And we may disagree in their philosophy of ministry We may disagree with the gender of their pastor. We may disagree with some of the nuances of what they do. But if they're true Christians, they are family. Would I recommend you worship at some of these churches? No. But you have to make a distinction between those two things. The distinction between avoiding churches or bringing unbelievers to churches where they won't hear the gospel or where they will not grow versus the reality of who we're going to be spending eternity with. There is a love that we are to have with with and for all believers, even if they don't fully agree with what we believe. Fourthly, the friendly embrace. The friendly embrace. Don't get too excited about this one, guys. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Verse 14. This is not an excuse to go around kissing whomever you want. <clears throat> Ray. This kiss uh, was a typical greeting, and it signified a brotherly affection that we are to have for one another. 
it was used by the Jews and then it was taken up by the disciples of Christ. Now another thing to understand too, if you're going to try to twist this verse, culturally it was only done men to men and women to women. And this is actually still common in, in some cultures. Some of you uh, are, are familiar with the stereotype of some uh, European cultures that still kiss, do the double kiss on the cheek. In fact, this was very common where I used to live in Albania. Uh, when I would lead and then eventually host summer missions teams in Albania, I would warn them. As here you got a bunch of college students uh, from usually uh, a liberal part of the country. And I would say, we, we kind of do this orientation. I'd say, this is a very different culture. It's not wrong. It's different. You know, Americans, we tend to think any, any other culture that's different is wrong. It's not wrong. It's different. And I would say, if you see men kissing each other on the cheek or holding hands while they cross the road, and once they cross the road for the first time, they understand they wanted to hold someone's hand too. It's pretty crazy. Um, it does not mean that they are homosexuals. It's a common sign of brotherly af- affection. In fact, I would tell them, uh, because they're there to minister to people, and they all, will, all would have host families and translators, so certain people we would strategically pair them up with uh, for gospel ministry, and they would spend a lot of time with these Albanians. And I would tell them, i say, look, it probably won't happen, because this is serious stuff, but if at the end of your trip, when you leave, and these guys say goodbye or they drive you to the airport, if a friend that you have made uh, in this country of the same gender embraces you and kisses you on the cheek, then praise God because you did something right. You've had an impact on that person's life. And the kiss of love is not something that we are commanded to do today, but a culturally acceptable substitute should be adopted by us, whether it's a physical greeting or something else. Uh, this would, uh, for the original recipients, this would have been most common during a worship service uh, because that's when all the Christians would gather together. And they could greet each other with this kiss of love. I think far too often uh, we are challenged, uh, uh, we, we have difficulty acknowledging certain people at church. Letting, let alone being so happy to see them that we want to greet them in some verbal or physical way. I think this is especially true, and I'm guilty of this, uh, for some of us who are setting up or actively serving on a Sunday because we're so busy getting our th- stuff done that we can become Marthas who are so busy running around doing our thing that we ignore the people. And there might be a disconnect between your faith that you profess and the way you live it out, if you don't come here on a Sunday morning and you aren't overwhelmingly excited and relieved to be with God's people on a Sunday morning, let me explain why. It's not because we're the most exciting people in the world. It's not because we're the most fun people in the world. In fact, outside of Christ, in terms of your hobbies and your jobs, there are probably a lot more unbelievers that you can, you can dialogue with about your, your job and your hobbies or whatever it may be. Just a smaller group here, right? I don't, as far as I know, none of you actually work at, uh, there's a few at Genentech, actually. I think that's the only one. I mean, we all work at separate jobs. We all work circuit place, different places. And so you can't even come to church and and talk about what's going on in your company with, with anyone really understanding what you're talking about. 
So why do I say we should be excited and relieved to be here? Because as we have seen in 1 Peter, and as, as we, you know from, from other scriptures, if we are to live the way we are supposed to live, not just living out our faith at home, but living out our faith in society, society is rough. The world is hard. Now, fortunately for us, it's going to sound weird because there's a lot of negatives to it, especially in regards to Christianity. But fortunately for us, we live in a, a world of much tolerance, or I should say in a county <laughs> of much tolerance. And so they tolerate us. I mean, we're not getting beaten up for our faith or whatever it is, right? But there are people who hate you because they hate Christ. There are people who will make it difficult for you. Persecution does exist. Uh, I can't go into specifics, but I know firsthand from someone who is overseeing all of this, who is a strong believer, that at one of the top medical schools in our nation, in this very state, that in your med school application, if you put that you have been involved in some sort of Christian organization, they will literally put your application on the bottom. This kind of thing is happening. Is it legal? I don't think so. But it's happening. The world out there is rough, especially if you are living boldly and out loud for Christ as you are supposed to. So where do you find relief from the persecution, the stares, the difficulties, the fears, the persecution with God's people? Are there people who come on any given Sunday morning that disagree with us, don't like us? Sure. But they're here, so they're not going to speak up. And rather than a, a bottle of wine or a spa because of a rough week, we have each other. We have Sunday mornings. So understand that there is uh, in this uh, uh, a friendly embrace. It, it may not be a kiss of love, but there is a heart recognition that God has given us, told us to set aside a time every Sunday morning for relief from really our jobs, which is rough. And finally, the fifth closing thought from a loving pastor, the final encouragement. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. This is Peter's final prayer for his beloved this is the kind of peace that only Christians can have. Outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no real lasting peace. Uh, there may be a temporary peace. Uh, there may be a pharmaceutically uh, induced physical peace, but there is no true lasting peace. This peace that he is uh, wanting, praying for, these people is not the peace of this world, but the confidence of the blessing of the coming age. That eternity of glory, by the way, going to our last point, we get a taste of when we are here with God's people in worship. And you could say it this way. If grace is the source of divine blessings, then peace sums up the content of it. And so, again, this isn't just peace like you will have no difficulty in life. 
this is an inner peace knowing that you are secure. Right? It's, life can almost be like a roller coaster sometimes. And as scary as it is, and riding that roller coaster, I don't like roller coasters. My understanding, those of you who do like roller coasters, you do it because you like to be scared, um, because you're crazy. No, I'm just kidding. My wife likes roller coasters. I'm always telling her, like, when the, when the boys grow up, I'm, I'm secure enough in my masculinity that you, ma'am, will be the one riding the roller coasters with them. Um, so, but we ride these roller coasters and you kind of, you know, you, you lose control or whatever, but you know you're not going to fly out because you're buckled in. That's the idea there, right? It's not this physical piece because you're like, ah! Right? Again, I don't ride them. I'm guessing I would probably... <laughs> um, but you know that you're secure in God's hands. You know that there is an eternity of glory, not condemnation for you in the future. I'm talking about rides like at Great America Disneyland, not carnival rides, because you'll probably fly out of those because those are... They just built those last night, like in two hours. It's crazy. They were on the back of a truck on the 101 last night. You want to ride that thing? It's insane. Heck it. Anyways, so there is an understanding also that we have a peace in Christ. And so, again, this is just a closing thing. I know that there are a lot of pastors uh, in a series like this. They actually won't cover these verses. Uh, They'll also skip sometimes the first or second verse, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We just told you a few months ago, unpack the same verse, another book, and and I get that. Uh, But understand, too, that although in Peter's mind, this is just kind of a signing off, guys, here's a reminder, peace in Jesus Christ. This is a prayer from an apostle. And it isn't just, you know, sincerely, and you sign a letter, right? What does that even mean? When you, you sign a letter and you say sincerely, what does that mean? Were you really sincere? I don't, it's just convention, right? Yours truly, I don't even know what that means, right? But we write that all the time. And so we can kind of pass that off as this is just this. This is just something that the apostles did. And in a sense, it is. But it is truth, Peter didn't write this and said, this is just what we write, but I don't really know what yours truly means. He knows what this means. He believes it. He's praying this for them, and he wants to remind them of all of this. And this is so fitting because he's telling them that they have the peace that comes only for those in Jesus Christ And as this was being read to the church, there were slaves, there were wives, there were just ordinary Christians whose wounds were still weeping blood from their persecution that morning as this letter is being read to them. You have to understand that the peace of Jesus Christ is otherworldly and profound. And it doesn't promise physical peace. It doesn't promise world peace. It promises that you can take hold of a knowledge of where you are going 
who you are going to worship eternally and know that no one can take that from you. So whatever you may be going through today or in years to come, remember God's grace through these final thoughts from the Apostle Peter. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And so, in conclusion, remember the faithful example of Silvanus and be encouraged that your service matters to God. Be mindful of the forceful exhortation that no matter how hard it may be for you to accept and obey, stand firm in your faith in God's Word, all of it. Appreciate the familial engagement that helps us to see the work of God and the fellowship of the saints and churches all around us and all around the globe. Practice the friendly embrace, whether it is physical or spoken, to express the affection you have for other believers and heed the final encouragement that no matter what you are going through, may the remembrance of Christ and the peace that that brings be yours in fullest measure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for just the example of Peter and Silvanus and the early church. Thank you for these closing words that bring this study to such a powerful conclusion and fitting end. May we remember through these, <coughs> these closing words and we be reminded of all the truths that you have convicted us, convicted us of over the past several months. May we continue to grow closer to you daily in our walks. In Jesus' name, amen.